0: Would you open your Bibles to Romans, the first chapter? Once again, we began this new series last week, and we continue today through the second half of chapter one, and I'm so thankful that we are finally here. I'd like to read Romans 1, 16 through 32. It will take a couple of minutes here. I invite you to follow along as I read this portion of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, And worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. There are portions of it such as this that are particularly difficult for our hearts, and the difficulty reveals the natural rebellion that lies within us. We want to be our own gods. We want to be the masters and rulers of our own fate. But in your kindness and in your love, you confront that kind of deadly arrogance and delusion and bring us face to face with your glory, your majesty, your power, and your sovereignty. And we ask that on this day, as we open your word, that you would open our hearts and by the power of the Holy Spirit you would illuminate our minds where they have been darkened by our own sin and rebellion, where you would empower our wills where they have been deadened and anesthetized to your spiritual work. And would you awaken our hearts from that spiritual sluggishness and stupor that not only keeps us from knowing you as you ought to be known, but keeps us from worshiping you and serving you and believing in you as we must. Oh, great God, the stakes are far higher than we can imagine them to be. And there is on this day a manifestation of your wrath, but it is nothing in comparison to what awaits all of those who turn away from you, the God of truth, the God of mercy, the God of salvation. Please have mercy on us this day. And as the gospel is preached, not only in this place, but in other ministries throughout the South Valley, we ask that you would empower those ministers with Holy Spirit truth, with fresh insight and understanding into the word, and that you would give the hearers ears that can hear, hearts that believe, souls that respond in faith. So as the gospel goes out throughout our beloved city and this state, that there would be many on this day who come face to face with the Creator, who loves them and has worked through Christ for their salvation. Oh Lord God, let us know on this day that the gospel as you have declared it here before us is in fact the power of God for salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week, we moved through the first 16 verses of Romans 1, looking specifically at how Paul defines and describes the gospel. That word gospel means good news. I'll probably say that a hundred times in the coming weeks and months. And it is not just good news kind of, of of an informational nature. As Paul describes in verse 16, it is actually the good news of God who goes to work in order to rescue those who are enslaved to their sin, who are in bondage and actually under condemnation at this very moment. And God's perfect plan is that you and I would be in a right relationship with Him. And a right relationship is a life of faith. Faith that God is who he reveals himself to be. Faith that God actually has done the things that the Bible teaches us he has done. Faith that believes the future works of God, not yet complete, will in time become complete. And that's part of what Paul says in verse 17. And as he continues to explain the gospel to us, the good news also includes, look at verse 17, that the righteousness of God is being revealed right now. And we'll, we'll dive in on this uh, a little more in just a few minutes. But as you look at this, from faith for faith. Now that little phrase is curious, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today. But when God opens your heart to receive his truth, that, that is the initial work of, of giving you faith. And as you respond in faith, There's greater faith. There's growth in faith. And so you could think of the gospel as verse 17 is telling us here is God revealing himself to us and doing this work that that not only creates that initial faith but grows it uh, until faith is sight and we stand in the presence of, of God and the work of salvation is completed. The problem here is that when we read the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, we personally are not righteous and we're not naturally inclined to put our faith in him. So this is the work of God, but this is the real problem for us. Now, if we had time and if you were willing you know, to remain here for about three hours, maybe four, we would actually work all the way from Romans 1.16 to chapter three, verse 20 but you're not willing and neither am I. And that's no criticism of your spirituality or mine. I mean, I'm already hearing little ones in the back room like begging for mercy. And if they don't receive it, the nursery workers will or will be begging for mercy as well. So, um, so I, I want to kind of set that before you, and, and really, even when we talk about the work of God, a very brief summary of what's going to happen in these almost three chapters is that, that the Lord is first going to confront the irreligious, and that's going to be the focal point of chapter 1, and, and try to bring all of us to that point of saying, I'm guilty. And then in chapter 2, he's going to speak to the very religious The the Jews in particular in Paul's day, but that would include other really religious committed people, but they're committed to a different kind of gospel or a different one altogether. And in in bringing people like us to that place of saying, I'm guilty, I'm not righteous as I ought to be, whether you are irreligious or religious, it is is with a view of, of understanding God's righteousness. But the problem is you have to reach the place, first of all, where you say, I'm not righteous. We think we are. We think we're politically enlightened or philosophically enlightened or religiously enlightened so that we we feel we have a kind of righteousness, but where God is going to use Paul to press this thing all the way to chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 is to close every mouth, stop every argument that we might raise against him to try to say, well, I'm righteous in this way, I'm righteous in that way, I'm righteous in another way, and God is saying, no, you are not. And until we are willing to close our mouths in an acknowledgement that we're unrighteous, we're not actually ready to hear the really good news, the gospel. So that's where Paul is running. Now, there's a beautiful image that I I just kind of want to set before you and say, you see that far distant peak there? I don't know what this peak is, by the way. It's just a great picture that helped illustrate it. Anybody recognize that, perchance? Uh, A a little aside, I, I sent out a little... Um, newsletter to friends several years ago about our transition to utah and many of them had supported us by prayer and financial gifts and this and and the other and i just grabbed a shot similar to this beautiful mountain scenery next thing i know a friend of mine back in greenville is like hey that's such and such a peak i've been there and i was like oh wow well cool (laughs) so if you if you've been there um just still roll with me (laughs) that peak is in the distance And if you kind of look down to the bottom right of the screen, there's a darker valley and even some clouds hanging over it. And I'm just telling you right now that the rest of this message is going to be fairly dark and cloudy, and next week too, because God is going to lead us to that place. As I said just a moment ago, we're all like guilty. Every mouth has to be stopped. As Paul writes, the whole world is accountable to God. But some of us, even right now, are saying, "Mm, not so sure and I'm just asking that you would open your heart to God's message. Now, overview again, we're still high level. What is God's work? And, and this is the really good news uh, where God is going to lead us to that place where he describes his, his work of justification. That is where he as judge legally declares repenting sinners to be righteous for Christ's sake, not for works that we do. But for Christ. Then the second part of, of this gospel is the work that God does to sanctify us, that he really does progressively, day by day, make us more holy, more holy, more righteous. I mean, you really can grow in this thing, but it's God's work. And then finally, his work of glorifying us, or glorification, you sometimes hear people say, and that is when this work is done. We're in the presence of God, so it's either after your death or after the return of Christ, which is a future event, and the transformation of righteousness is complete. And both internally and externally, you and I will be righteous. But at this moment, we're not there yet. Some of what we will consider today is actually dark and disturbing and some of what we need to set our hearts on today and even next Sunday is unpopular in our present culture. Some are even offended by what the Bible says in very direct terms. And many of us find offense because we feel somehow we are enlightened that we are more progressive you know, than our parents or previous generations. But I say to you again, there really is no good news There is no gospel unless we first consider the desperation and brokenness and deadly nature of our condition. Or the two terms that Paul uses, ungodliness and unrighteousness. So I want you to see first of all in this text that that God is revealing his righteousness now, when we speak of God's righteousness, there, there really are three particular uh, aspects of that, or, or even uses, we might say. And when, when Paul says he is revealing this to us, he's making these things known to us. Many times people feel like, well, where is God? Why does he hide himself from us? Well, he actually isn't. He's speaking in all kinds of ways, even at this very moment. But Paul is thinking of an ongoing process or even series of actions uh, whereby God is revealing himself to us. And one of the ways is through the, the preaching of this gospel, as Paul is saying. Now, righteousness in particular, and that may be fairly small for some of you, first of all, it has reference to an attribute of God. You say, What is that attribute? Well, the attribute of God's righteousness means that he always acts in accordance with what is right and he himself is the final standard of what is right. He's perfect in every way. I know that may seem a little odd and bizarre, like, so he gets to make the rules? Yes, but you don't want anyone else in the universe making the rules because nobody else is perfect in every way. Perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness, perfect in truth, perfect in grace, perfect in love, perfect in mercy. He's All of those perfections come to bear on the standards of what is right or the law of God as he forms it. So the righteousness of God can refer to an attribute, and we might even say in another way, the gospel reveals the righteous nature of God. Number two, it's also a status given by God. Righteousness in Paul's uh, letter to the Romans will have reference at certain points to that judicial or legal standing given to sinners who repent and believe. And so we could summarize that in one way by saying the gospel reveals the righteous standing given by God. That would be God's righteousness. There's a third way that we can understand this, and it actually is an activity of God. And that has reference to God's saving intervention. That is his work of righteousness as he intervenes in the lives of unrighteous people. So to summarize that, we might say the gospel reveals the righteous work of God. And there's so much rich uh, gospel truth coming in later chapters. So just hang on to that. But as I said a moment ago, we don't think of ourselves as really being ungodly and unrighteous and in need of rescue. And that's where God in his kindness actually begins to reveal his wrath against all sin. Look at verse 18. Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. What is wrath? Well, here's a simple working definition for you. It is the punitive outworking of God's righteous indignation at sin or over sin. We must not think of God's wrath as like this angry outburst where he's just kind of like had all he can take and then, you know, bam, he explodes. That, that would be an inaccurate understanding of God's wrath. It is actually a settled and measured response that flows out of his character, all of those perfections, and it is a response against all of that ungodliness and unrighteousness that flows out of us. So even his wrath, as it begins to express itself, is right. It's the righteous response of his hatred for evil. We, have little, uh, we, we are little mirrored reflections of that. There was a headline that grabbed my attention this week where there were multiple arrests made in, relation, in relationship to the crime of human trafficking. And there was part of me that was like, good, you get those guys. Lock them away for a long time. Hope there are many you know, people, children, people of all ages who, who now have been rescued and brought back into the kind of life that they should. And, and if, if, you felt, if you read that same headline and you felt a little surge of, like anger over what had happened, but also the sense of, yeah, you felt maybe a little touch of God's wrath. The indignation that you felt over this criminal behavior is a reflection of God's indignation over all sin. Now, there are two particular words that Paul uses, but before those two words appear, he uses the word all, all ungodliness, it's important for us to remember that when it speaks of all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, God doesn't overlook some sins and then kind of focus on his, his pet irritations. Like, well, those things really upset me. No, it's not so big deal. No, because of his holiness and justice and righteousness and truth, all sin is eternally offensive to him. And the term ungodliness is a very general term for wickedness of any kind. It can refer to our neglect of God's law or or God's standards for loving our neighbor or a violation of his law. So, So you can be ungodly by neglecting to do the stuff you should do or doing stuff he said you shouldn't do. And the term unrighteousness just refers, again, broadly speaking, to everything that doesn't conform to God's standard of righteousness. It's comprehensive. But again, look at the text with me. Because Paul goes on to say, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, that's that general wickedness, all unrighteousness, anything that is not in conformity with God's truth, his standard, his law. But then verse 18 says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now what is this about? Suppressing the truth. Well, our sin is actually a means of saying no to God, of rejecting his authority, of rejecting his divine nature. You know, the truth of God is actually, the truth about God is actually plain and clear. How many of you spent time uh, under the, the dark skies in Utah? Just a quick show of hands. I don't do this very often. Um... It's magnificent, isn't it? Were you aware of the fact that of the vast amount of international dark sky parks and communities, and that's a thing, that um, Utah has the highest concentration of any other place on planet Earth? I know some of you are like, yeah, so. But those of you who really love God are in awe of this at this moment. (laughs) No, places like Arches and Canyonlands and Dead Horse Point State Park and Goblin Valley and three others that we would add to the list. I mean, these are like certified dark sky locations where where you can go down there and set up your telescope if you want to, or just lie on your back and gaze up into the heavens and see stuff that you won't see here in the city. And what you see when you lie on your back or peer through a telescope is quite breathtaking. And it becomes plain and clear in those settings in a way that it's not plain and clear here in this setting. Look at verse 19. Paul says what can be known about God is plain to them. Verse 20, he says invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God has worked in such a way in creation where he is making it plain. It is clear. We hear often these days, follow the science, follow the science. That's related to the pandemic, it's related to climate change, and I know we all probably have our own opinions, but I am actually for following the science. And Paul is stating that the natural order, the science, if you will, plainly and clearly reveals two things in particular, the eternal power of, of this God and the divine nature of this God. See, here's the point, this is why I would even, not just use it as a sermon illustration, but encourage you to go to some of these dark sky areas, lie down in your back and gaze into the heavens on a dark night, see what you can see, but you're, you're actually supposed to go beyond, wow, this is really pretty and amazing and I'm so glad I live in Utah. You're supposed to conclude that the God who created this has a nature not like yours and has power not like yours. You're supposed to dissect a frog in high school biology and conclude a god of eternal power and divine nature has put this little animal together. You're supposed to look at gecko feet and bat wings and horse leg bones and conclude a god of eternal power and divine nature created this. You're supposed to examine a strand of DNA and say there's no way this came together by random chance. A god of eternal power and divine nature created this. It's clear, beloved, it's plain. But there's something else going on here. And that's where Paul brings this kind of evidence, if you will, like an endless list of eyewitnesses called before a judge and jury. The evidence from nature testifies against our sinful, blinded hearts because we are willingly blind to these things. And it really does leave us without a defensible position when we say, there's no creator, God. I'm not accountable to some higher being. And the truth is, we are just like these people described in this text, not just without excuse, but we're truth suppressors. Because when it comes right down to it, many of us would rather have our sin than be responsible to the God who created us. But I want you to notice where this suppression of the truth leads us. See, we're we're without excuse. His invisible attributes, uh, his eternal power, divine nature. I mean, it's all evident when you're staring into a night sky like that and and many other things. Plain to them, clearly perceived. We're without excuse, but, but there's progression. Look at verse 21 with me. Again, Paul writes, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish heart was darkened. Do you see that is that is a downward spiral or decline? And if you actually do go out on a dark night and gaze into the heavens and scoff at God, and you don't pause to give him thanks, do you know where that's going to lead, lead you next? Feudal thinking. It's going to lead you into greater darkness. Without excuse, but that leads us to being people without light. When Paul writes that thinking becomes futile, he's actually referring to a a condition of incapable of producing results. It doesn't mean there will be no results ever of any kind. It just means that you're going to continually come up short as to where the results of your thinking might have been. Foolish hearts, they're void of understanding. And sadly, he says, we're darkened. Reaching a point where they are unable because they are unwilling to perceive. My grandmother had a a condition that many of you are familiar with. Some of you may even be treating it, and hopefully early enough, but glaucoma. I remember my grandma, this is my mom's mom, was always putting eye drops in her eyes. And I remember when she first described this to me, the scary thing uh, was that this is a condition that creeps up on you. You don't feel it, you don't really experience it when it is setting on, but it's a condition that damages your eye's optic nerve, and it gets worse and worse over time. It has to do with the buildup of pressure inside your eye, and the increased pressure in your eye, which the technical term, I read this, intraocular pressure. But that will eventually damage the optic nerve, even though you are unaware of it, and it can lead to blindness if, if it is not treated. So all the more reason to get your annual eye exam, right? It's very serious. And what's alarming about, about glaucoma, as I said, is that you won't feel the trouble you're in initially when, it, when it's really beginning to unfold and if you finally go to your eye doctor who examines you and tells you that you have a condition that will lead to blindness, you would be a fool to say, "But I can see fine today. My eyes don't bother me. Nothing hurts. I don't have any symptoms that make me uncomfortable." You know, that that is a response not unlike what is unfolding in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they actually became fools. They think they're full of enlightenment, and and good uh, learning and sense, but God says no, they're actually devoid of good sense. They're void of any uh, sober judgment, without excuse, without light, and that ultimately leads to this condition of without wisdom. It's at this point that there is a catastrophic exchange, as I'll describe it, and you see it appearing, first of all, in verse 23. Look at this. Three times the term exchange is used in this first chapter. First of all, they exchange. We, as rebellious, ungodly, unrighteous people, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, but at the end of the day, they're not the real thing. So we've not only turned away from God himself, the, the creator, who deserves our, our worship and our honor and our gratitude, but now we, we turn to images, to icons, if you will. Wouldn't you think it odd if after the service today you said, hey, do you have plans for lunch? And I said, yeah, I do, I'm having lunch with an old friend named Joe. And you said, oh, wow, tell me about Joe. And I said, well, I've known him since I was a boy. I mean, we, we've spent lots of time together. And... Um, He's very dear to me. And then as we continue to talk, you're like, well, I'd like to meet Joe. And I'm like, well, great, he's in the car. you want to go meet him? And you're like, that's kind of odd. I thought he would have been in church, but maybe he's been waiting patiently for Danny in the car. And I take you out to my car, and I introduce you to Joe, and it's my GI Joe from when I was a boy. <laughs> and you'd be like, "You know, where's the hidden camera? Like, is for real? And I'm like, oh, I'm very serious. And, and you would look at this icon, and you'd look at me, and, and if you were polite, you might just walk away. <laughs> if you're the confrontational, loving type, you might be like, uh, Danny, we are going to the hospital right now. You've lost your mind. Or you might even say, what about Kristen? And if at that point I said, who? He said, your wife, you know, your better half, that, that attractive lady sitting right there in the second row. What, why wouldn't you go to lunch with her? Oh, I, you know, I, I gave her up a long time ago. G.I. Joe is where it's at. I mean, such action on my part would demonstrate that I have actually become a fool. I've exchanged the glory, the weight of a a real relationship with the one who is my better half for a relationship with something that's not even living, real. But beloved, that's what we do in our sin every day when we suppress the truth by our sin and we walk away from God and, and we take up icons and images And make those the objects of relationship and worship. Now, here's the great sadness. We'll come back. There are two more parts of this exchange. Well, let me go ahead and put those out there. Verse 25, there's an exchange of the truth about God for a lie. And then there's the exchange of natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So three aspects of this catastrophic exchange that Paul is referring to here. But here's what I want you to see and this is God's righteous response to our rebellion. And this, this is what ought to make every single one of us tremble. Because if you tell God, no, long enough, no, I don't want you, no, I don't believe in you, no, I reject you, no, I, I close my eyes to the evidence in this world all around me, no, 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 no. Look at verse 24, God gives us up or surrenders us to the impurity that we've loved more than we've loved him. Paul says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Isn't that horrifically ironic? The relationship we were created for and could have had with God himself that leads to eternal life Psalm 16 says, in your presence there's fullness of joy at your right hand There are pleasures that never end. But because we say no to God and we want to go seek joy and pleasure in other things, uh, God says, I'll give you up to that. I'll actually give you what you want. And so there's this... Second exchange, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You know, the little illustration I gave about you know trying to have a relationship with G.I. Joe, that is laughable, it's so absurd, but I want you to think of the catastrophic nature of rejecting God and worshiping and serving creatures rather than the creator. Not only does he surrender us to impurity, but in the second place, he surrenders us to dishonorable passions again the second time for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions and then he describes uh, two examples of this and we see this in our culture today women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise giving up natural relations with women and being consumed with passion one for another and this takes us further and further away from the creator who loves us In the third place, he surrenders us to a debased mind. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. There it is, is—a third occurrence, to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. Now I want you to note carefully that it is not simply these two examples of sexual sin that Paul is addressing, because now in verse 29 he goes on to say they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And then he gives 20 different examples. It's the most extensive vice list in the New Testament, if you will. It's interesting how some of these are grouped together. Uh, Evil, covetousness, malice seem to be more generic. And then he speaks full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Those things are, are, are sins that bring great harm against one another. Horrific irony, isn't it, that well we should be in relationship with God himself, loving him supremely, that would translate into the right kind of love for our fellow human beings. But now, because he's given us over to our sin, to our unrighteousness, we actually turn on one another. What's wrong with our world today? Ungodly, unrighteous people like you and me, that's what's wrong with our world. It's not liberal politicians or conservative politicians. It's not even coronavirus. It's you and me. We're what's wrong. Paul goes on to say in verse 30, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless." One author who's been very helpful for me in my study, Douglas Moo, writes, the harm done by people to other people is thus added to idolatry and sexual perversion to complete Paul's sketch of the world outside of Christ. It's a world God never intended, but a world that we have launched into existence by our ungodliness and unrighteousness. And beloved, when we reject God, expelling him from us, our hearts and minds, and then he responds by giving us over to our lust and desire. The world doesn't improve. It spirals downward, deeper and deeper into this darkness, into violence and abuse and mistreatment one of another, and we will destroy ourselves if God keeps his hands off of us forever. But remember, the good news, the gospel is that God is powerfully at work. We will return to that, but we're still in that dark valley under the clouds. There's a grand peak we're going to come to in a little while longer, so hang on there. But look again at the text, verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Now, two thoughts. The first, though, is this. How many of us truly believe we deserve to die for our sins? There are probably some parents here who are like pointing to that one little line disobedience to parents. You see that? You see that, kid? God's gonna kill you (laughs) if I don't do it first. You know, disobedience to parents really is a capital offense. Children, it will send you to hell. See what? That's kind of harsh. I would not be your friend if I did not warn you. And adults, There are 21 other vices on this list that would send all of us to hell just as rapidly. Envy, really, a capital offense? You better believe it. Covetousness, he says it right there. Our world laughs at this. People scoff at this as puritanical and old-fashioned and even bigoted, but God says, I love you too much to let you descend deeper and deeper into into this abyss that will ultimately land you in the fires of hell forever. Please turn away from your sin. Will you? Here's a second thought, and you, boy, do we see this. The main strategy for quieting the conscience is not only to persist in such sins, but to actually, to actually recruit others to it, to approve of it. And if we get enough of us together and the majority says, this isn't sin, this isn't destructive of us, then we all feel good about ourselves for a season and beloved when our legislators propose laws or a president uses the power of executive orders to make ungodly unrighteous behaviors and lifestyles legal we ought to tremble and fall to our knees in repentance and begging God with tears to show mercy to our fellow image bearers because that's what human beings are it's not a time to, to be outraged and say, well, he's not my president, or, well, I voted for him, but I really am disappointed that he did this. Listen, th- this, this kind of, of step on the part of humanity pushes us further and further from God, and it may temporarily soothe the conscience, but it does nothing to alleviate the real guilt all of us are under and the condemnation that or the wrath that is presently being shown, and the great eternal wrath that will come. And if you find yourself looking at a a list of vices like this going, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I don't do that stuff. Oh, God have mercy on your soul. You might want to skip the next couple of weeks when we go to chapter 2 because God's got your number. Again, Douglas Moo writes, it is this judgment of the world that the present infliction of God's wrath I may not have made this clear, so let me just pause for a moment and make this clear. When you see these vices permeating culture, it is the initial wave of God's wrath. God's righteous wrath includes giving us over to our sins. It will culminate in the eternal torment of hell forever. But this first wave that we see wrapped around our world right now, this is God issuing that first warning, if you will. There's wrath now. Wrath is coming. So Douglas Moo writes, it is this judgment of the world that the present infliction of God's wrath is intended to reveal, for the present experience of God's wrath is merely a foretaste of what will come on the day of judgment. Furthermore, what both the warning of wrath to come and the present experience of wrath demonstrate is the sentence of condemnation under which all people outside Christ stand. That ought to be shattering to us, shattering to the point where we would beg God to have mercy on our family members and friends, on ourselves, as we find ourselves in these particular evidences of rebellion, of suppressing the truth of God, and even experiencing His wrath. And and I actually wrote this into my notes as I was coming through this over the last couple of days. I I just am brought to this place uh, of crying out, who will save us from the wrath of God that's already on us? And who will save us from the wrath of God that is yet to come? That little phrase, God gave them up or surrenders them, is used one other time in Romans. Do you know where it occurs? Turn to chapter 8. Sometimes people say, it's not fair that God did this. What we're about to read is not fair either. In Romans 8, 32, we see this little phrase occurring again, but what a different context and point. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? you know, 2,000 years ago, God surrendered his son. Surrendered his beloved son to the gross miscarriage of justice in Caiaphas' court. Surrendered him to the Roman mocking and scourging. Surrendered him to the horrors of Calvary's cross. Surrendered God the son to be the sin-bearing, curse-bearing, wrath-bearing sacrifice For ungodly, unrighteous people like you, like me, he gave him over to death. And in giving him over, he opened the path to life, freedom, forgiveness. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes to those saints, but out of the same powerful gospel truth that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, Paul makes the very firm statement, and there's a little brief vice list that is comparable to Romans 1. And he says, emphatically, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, Don't you know this? Do not be deceived. And here's the vice lift list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here it comes. And such were some of you. What what made the difference? Well, here it comes in the next verse. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And there's our hope. Who will save us from the present wrath and the wrath to come? The answer is clearly and undeniably and singularly the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us back to good news. We're not at the summit yet, but now we glimpse it again. Out of the darkness, from underneath the clouds, there's a little glimpse of light and hope. We do not have to remain where we are. This present taste of God's wrath is a warning of wrath to come, so you would be wise to flee it personally. We would be wise to flee it corporately but the present taste of God's wrath is also motivation for us to proclaim this gospel we are discovering because there are in fact friends and family and co-workers and neighbors there are thousands of people around us every day who are rushing headlong into this abyss and they are not fully aware so while the verdict stands over the people we meet every day Douglas Moo writes as much as over the people Paul rubs shoulders within this first century, our urgency in communicating the gospel should be as great as Paul's. And I would even back up one step from that and say our faith in this gospel should be as simple and sure as Paul's. The gospel is the power of God and to everyone that believes, the Jew first, also to the Greek, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Because as it is written, the justified ones live by faith. Let's pray together. God in heaven, there are dark and difficult truths here, but we see it as such a, a demonstration of your love that you would issue a warning and even let us feel the initial wave of wrath It's hard for us to fathom how your holy heart is stoked to that place where it will one day give full vent. It's hard for us to understand what the full venting of that wrath would look like. But as we turn to the cross, we see something of it there. And we praise you for our Savior, our sin-bearing Substitute Jesus. And would you cause each person here to see him as crucified Lord. Give us grace to forsake all self-righteousness and unrighteousness and turn in humble faith to you, the giver of this saving righteousness. Lord, we have long soothed our consciences in all manner of rebellion. But as we stand before you, the living God, there's not one of us who can claim innocence or guiltlessness. And I pray on this day that you would bring each person here and those who are joining us via live stream, others who might listen to this Uh, recorded message at a later time. Oh, Lord God, bring every one of us to that place of humble repentance, owning our sin, but looking to Jesus. And while it may be true that some at this moment have been given over to impurity and dishonorable passions, our hope is that you gave Jesus over to the cross. And because of him, we may know the power of your washing the glory of your justifying and the beauty of our progress in being sanctified. Oh, Lord God, let us know personally, let us know as a church family, let us know as a city the power of God Almighty for salvation. As you remain in a spirit of prayer for a moment, I want to extend this word of invitation. If you are here today saying, I've never considered these things before and I am in trouble. I see that I am an unrighteous, ungodly person. And I do tremble to think of what might await me on the other side of this life. I must talk to you, Danny. I must talk to somebody or know more about it. I wonder, and I'm gonna ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed because I don't want to embarrass anyone right now, but is there someone here who would say, you've just described me, Danny. Could we talk at a later time? Would you just raise your hand that I could see that, and we will find a time to talk. Yes, thank you. We can talk right after this service. We'll find a little quiet corner here if that is convenient for you or we can set up a time to, to meet later in the week, but it'd be a great pleasure. Anybody else? I suspect that many of you are thinking of friends, family, loved ones, coworkers, who, who you, you see under this darkness and spiraling downward, and I would encourage you to bathe that in prayer, but make a point this week to speak of Christ to them. And by faith, we we proclaim the gospel because God works powerfully through this gospel message. Let's pray like we've never prayed before so that as we plant that gospel seed, we we water it with the tears of our prayers and we cultivate the soil with prayers of faith, claiming the promises of God, but beloved, we don't know how much more time we have. But to hearten you, the same passage that tells us God gave up his son also tells us that the promise of the Father to the Son is that He will be the firstborn among many brothers. So hold on to that promise even as you seek to give it. And Lord, finish that work in our hearts. Thank you for the tender response that many are offering to you right now. Would you continue to do a good and gracious work in us for your name's sake? These things we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.